Mean Old Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Hey everybody, long time no see. Welcome Black. Black again. Black like I never left. Black as ever. Black AF. It's another wonderful episode of the Black Arm of the Law. I am your host, Carl M.F. Payne. Carl Payne, a.k.a. Mama, there go that man again. Today's episode is a good one, y'all. Today's guest comes from the great state of New York, the Big Apple. 27 long, great years of service career spanning from serving with the New York State Police all the way to becoming head of the DEA Criminal Drug Investigation Administration Division um, in Baltimore. Uh, man, this, this guy's got, got a ton of history and a lot of stories, a lot of experience. I'm looking forward to hearing his story today. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Don Hibbert. All right, Don, welcome to the show. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, your, your early start and your beginnings. You, so you're originally from Long Island. Yeah, man. You know, family originally from Jamaica, but grew up on Long Island. I, I became interested in law enforcement, like in my senior year of high school. Right, mm. You know, um, I took a class in criminal justice, you know, back in my senior year of high school, you know, John Gotti uh, was the big mafia boss. Right. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Untouchable. And, right. Uh, it's the untouchable. untouchable. Right. You know, they could the cops couldn't get him. The feds couldn't get him. And I was just fascinated with like, you know, being in law enforcement and, and you know, chasing after who's being targeted. You know, so that kind of piqued my interest, you know, and then uh, I went into college and then I studied criminal justice in college. Had a couple of unique experiences in college that uh, that, um, you know, could have could have turned me against being in law enforcement you know talk to me about that real quick okay well you know i was uh you know i was a sophomore in college right just had my my old uh sunbird vehicle you know beat up car you know but that's what you drive in college right you know i went to a college party right so after the after the party you know i'm hungry it's, it's like one in the morning right so where do you go the all night what, what college is this what college is this oh new york tech see uh, that's important that's important yes yeah new york that's tech long island right you know uh, or New York Institute of Technology, as I should say. You know, it's not, not to be confused with New York City Tech, but um, I went to New York Tech, Long Island. And um, so after the party, you know, I'm hungry, right? You know, it's, uh, so I go to the all night KFC. And as I'm driving back, I noticed that my headlights were out. And I was like, oh, and a, a cop was passing me. So, you know, he spun around, pulled me over. I had my headlights on, right? And I later learned, once I got into law enforcement, that is a legitimate reason to stop a vehicle, at least back then. So he stopped me and, uh, you know, he asked me the, the regular questions and I was polite. Like I was, you know, we're all trained to be that way, right? When you come mm-hmm. across law enforcement. And then he said, hey, man, I, you know, I'd like to search your vehicle. And I'm like, sir, I, I don't do any drugs. I got no criminal record. He's like, well, I want to search anyway. So he took me out of my car. He searched my vehicle, left me out in the cold, no jacket, middle of winter. Um, and what really bothered me was everybody that drove by looked at me like I was, you know, a suspect or a criminal, you know, and then found nothing left all my stuff inside of the road and then drove away. So to me, that was a negative experience I had there as a 18, 19 year old uh, in college. Right. You know, but I still stayed with it, you know, and then like a year later, my mom got mugged at Thanksgiving in Queens and, um, you know, she had a, a little cut over her head. And when the cops came, I later, you know, I later learned that they didn't put her in the car, they didn't give her a Band-Aid. They just took the report, you know, and I'm like, you know, that's my mother. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be treated a little better than that, you know. So again, that was, you know, two experiences that really said, you know, do I want, really want to be in law enforcement? Do I really want to be in law enforcement? And then, um, you know, I, um, but I didn't let that affect me. So, you know, I graduated, um, you know, took the test for law enforcement, and then I became a, a New York State trooper in 1992. Nice. Yeah, I was the first in my family to go to uh, to be in law enforcement, right? So I didn't grow up with it. You know, it wasn't discussed at the dinner table growing up. You know, my dad was a college professor. My mom was in dentistry. So I was the first in my family to go to be in law enforcement. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's I why you guys. What it was that's about. why you guys chose to move to Long Island instead of with the rest of your family in Brooklyn, right? <laughs> well, you know, I got all the family in the city, you know. But uh, <laughs> you know, my 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 dad did the Jeffersons, right? You know, we're moving on Absolutely. up. <laughs> Absolutely, you probably had grass you know? the whole nine. Right? <laughs> oh yeah, man. Yeah, you know, yeah, listen, see? I'm not gonna tell you. Yeah, I had some grass. It was nice to have that, you know. But uh, but I I still realize uh, what it's what it's all about. Hey, I married a city girl. I married a girl from Brooklyn, right? So there you, you know, go. So. See. So uh, I, I I didn't leave. I left the city, but I didn't leave the city. If you know what I mean. I got you. I got you. I got you. So uh, yeah. So you took the state trooper, and you said yep. that was ninety two, right? Ninety two. I joined the state police. Yes, like I said first in my family to go. And you know the state police, man, that's like a paramilitary organization, right? You know, mm-hmm. and you know, who, you know me, college kid, no prior, no prior military, no prior law enforcement. You know, I showed up late my first day. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, <laughs> uh, which is crazy, right? You know, uh, but I didn't have that discipline yet. I didn't have that discipline necessary to really learn how to do it. So when I got up to Albany, New York, which is where the academy is, I walked in and I tapped the uh, the, the like the drill sergeant, right? You know, the the NCO of the academy, he's like Wait, non commissioned officer. You touched him? Like I, I touched him. I tapped him on the shoulder, like, hey, where do I go? Right? You know, and you know, my fiance at the time was with me, and so was my mom. So. He's not going to yell at me in front of them, right? You know, he's not going to do that to me. But he said, oh, no, what's your, you know, what's your name? And uh, about two days later, he caught up to me. <laughs> and, boy, he let me have it, you know. And you know what? 29 years later, uh, I'm never late, right? You, you know, even for this thing, I was here 20 minutes early. Right. You know when, you, when, you're, when you're on time, you're late. That's correct. That's correct. So yeah. um, that's that kind of instilled the discipline that I needed as a young man. To, to be in law enforcement and to really, you know, to really go out there and do the job. Well, you know, it's, you know, I, I think that some of the, some of the training that happens in military or some of the military training definitely yep. is very useful, you know, in yes. civilian life as well. My father used to drill me. Uh, he, was in, <laughs> he was in the Air Force. So he used, yes. to, he used to drill some of that training into me. And I hated it at the time. Of course. But when of course. I got older, I definitely saw the benefits. Yes. I saw the benefits of a lot of that stuff, you know. That's um, correct. That's correct. Know, a lot of the things that, that were drilled in me that used to be laborious or, or chores or, you know, whatever, became just a routine and habit forming, which, you know, then when you're, you're out in the real world, certain things just like it's nothing to you because it's just a habit already. Yes, Versus, you oh, know, yeah. something that's hard or a chore. So, yeah, some of that no, stuff. It, it definitely teaches you a lot of things, you know, just a lot of things about life discipline, you know, really how to stay safe, right? You know what I mean? Uh, as a trooper, I, I mean, I work by myself quite a bit. So, you know, you you out there by yourself. You, you yeah. really got to know how to how to, how to to talk to people and, and and make sure you go home, you know, every night alive. So, so but, let's, you know, let's so get into this then. So where, where were you? What, yeah. was the, what was the area that you... Um, were assigned. I patrolled my, my home area. Uh, they sent me back to Long Island. And so it was crazy when, uh, you know, you end up stopping somebody and somebody you went to high school with. or somebody, Hey, you man. Know. Oh, good to see you, man. Hey, look. <laughs> What's up, Don? How you doing? You know, ain't nothing, you know, same old thing. But hey, check this out. I'm going to need that license, though. I'm going to need you. I'm still going to need that from you. I'm still going to need it. Exactly. That's how that's how, that's how how cats from Brooklyn used to rob, rob cats like us back in the day. If you was a celebrity... <laughs> Or if they knew you, they'd be like, oh, yo, you my favorite. Damn, son. Yo, you be making me laugh. But check this out, though. I'm going to still need those sneakers, though. For real, though. For real, yeah. Uh, we from the same generation, so we know how that used to be, right? Super right. same generation. Yeah, I know so, exactly what you're talking about. So, all right, let's fast forward because there's some things mm-hmm. I want to get into quickly. Sure, sure. Very exciting. Talk to me about how you got into the uh, the DEA. 
Yes. Because I've seen I've seen enough movies that you're about to make come true for me. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's yeah, that's yeah, the most yeah. exciting thing I've heard in a long time. So Okay. Okay. So, tell well, me how you got involved uh, with that. I always wanted to be in federal law enforcement, right? So, you know, um, a friend of mine um, talked to my wife about the uh, about DEA was hiring in the mid-90s, right? So I, I got hired under the, uh, the 100,000 cops, uh, the crime bill of 1994, I believe it was, right? You know, mm-hmm. so there was going to hire 100,000 cops across the country. So I got hired in DEA in 1997. So I really wanted to get into federal law enforcement and kind of work law enforcement at the, uh, you know, kind of like at the highest level, right? Which is federal. Yep. Yep. So uh, I put my application in, man. I went through the process and uh, I joined DEA in 1997. You know, I went down to the academy in Quantico. You know, I went through the training there again, similar to what I went through in New York uh, with the state police. Um, Learn how to, you know, be a narc, right? How to be a narcotics agent, right? And uh, so I, I graduated and got assigned up to the, uh, the Boston Division. I was assigned to an office in Connecticut. You know, so uh, uh, and in those days, you know, when, when I was a state trooper, right, you got to be groomed, short crop hair, you know, no beard, you know. But then when I got the DEA, I could be like, you know, grow it out, right, blow it out, like you yeah. got it right now. Yeah, right? Yeah. You know, this, and, uh, I got the quarantine joint on right now. There you yeah. got. It. There you go. There you go. I call, so, I call it the C nineteen. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, it's all growing out, man. Looks good, <laughs> you know. Next so uh, well, that's how I was looking back in those days, right? You know, I was, uh, you know, when you're working, you know, in narcotics and you're working undercover. You know, I did a bunch of undercover, man, you know, bought drugs. You know, it was kind of a bit like a, a big rush, right? You know what I mean? To like go out there and, and meet somebody and, and, you know, and buy drugs undercover. You know, it created like a, a rush, man. You know what I mean? And I, so, so let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> so did they give you training? Like, like, is there a training for that? Like, is there a class where they're like, okay, this is how you approach somebody. This is how yeah. you buy drugs. This is yeah. what you look yeah. You know what I'm saying? Was there like a whole little acting class that they set up for you guys? <laughs> well, you learn undercover techniques, right? Undercover techniques mm-hmm. in the academy. But when you get out there, you got to just apply what you know and kind of try to be yourself in that role, right? You know, so, you know, and usually, you know, you get that intro and uh, you go in and do your thing. So, yes, you know, there's techniques on how to first, how to make sure you stay safe, right? Obviously, you know, and to get the necessary evidence you need while you're working in the undercover capacity, you know, you just rely on your instincts to when you get in there and you just say what you got to say and do what you got to do and play the role. Any crazy, any anything crazy happened? Like, you know, was there ever like a really a moment where it could have gone a different way or just like a, you know, was there anything that happened when you were, you know, obviously at this stage of your career that yeah. was like, yo, that was a crazy, you know what I'm saying? Like that was crazy. No, fortunately, man, I never had anything really, really crazy, but I did have one guy tell me that, you know, hey, man, if you a cop, you know, I'm going to kill you, you know, and I was like, well, hey, I ain't no damn cop, you know, you just, you know, you play the role. I've had friends, you know, get into situations where, you know, it was really dangerous for them, but, you know, for me, you know, everything kind of went smoothly because, you know, it's kind of how you act. I try to dictate, like, where we meet, what we do, you know, and, you know, um, you know, when you're playing the role of like a baller, you know what I mean? You just, you know, you kind of control and dictate where you go and what you say and what you do. Right. You know, I never had anybody like run me around and tell me, hey, man, you come here, you come there. No, nah, man, you'll meet me over here. You know, that type of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, got you. You control yeah, the you know, environment. You yeah, control, control the environment as much as you possibly can. Got you. Right. Got you. You know? Yeah. Hold on. I'm taking notes. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> man, I, those techniques are old, man. Those are old. <laughs> Obviously. Listen, that's the late 90s. <laughs> I said, if you uh, ever wanted to get away, but you know what? It's a different game now, man. It's that's a what I said. Game right if you now. ever wanted to get away with anything, it was between '76 and '87. After that, <laughs> it's over. 
It's over, right? You know, between 76 and 87 was the, the, the time that you had to get away with everything. <laughs> yep. now, no, now, I nowadays, I can say chicken. I could be thinking about chicken chicken tikka masala. Turn on my phone, and there it is. I'm like, God, dang. <laughs> so now you go from yep. here. You, you know, how, how do we get to the DEA? How do we get there? Okay, so, you know, like I said, you know, I went through the academy and uh, I joined, they put me up, they signed me up there to New England, uh, did some undercover, but, you know, to really, to get ahead on this job, I knew that I had to learn to be like an investigator, almost like what they call like a case agent, right, where you are the one leading the entire investigation, not just a portion of it where you're working undercover, you know. How did you so, figure that out? And you just watch, right, you know, you see. So, so you, you didn't have anybody, so you didn't have anybody, like a lot of the guys I've talked to in this, thing, you know, um, yeah. on the show have always mentioned that there was always someone before them that kind of showed them the ropes, that kind of mentored them a little bit or ushered them in or let them know, hey, do's and don'ts and, you know, certain things like that. But you're saying this is all trial and error. These are things that you found out on your own. and no, just Well, you know, listen, no, for sure. Now, now I'm not, I'm not going to diss my mentors, man. There were a lot of people that helped me along the way. Um, but in those early, early days, you know, I didn't know those folks until I started going to different events and, and meeting people as I kind of grew in the agency. You met a lot of people. But in those early days, um, you know, you relied on, you know, your instincts. And I had a couple of uh, a good partner, too, um, that had been, you know, in, in, in law enforcement for a while. And they kind of guided me and, uh, you know, and really showed me the art of really being a, a good investigator. Mm-hmm. And that that's what made the difference, obviously. It makes a difference. Absolutely. You know, I mean, and, and you know what, throughout my career. Um, and everybody knows this, you know, I did my best to make sure I mentor and train up the next generation, you know, people that work for me, that work with me, you know, I made sure that I took care of them so that they understood and learned the job. You know, I'm retired now and I still talk to people on the job, both in the state police and at DEA, um, about issues that pop up with their, with their lives or whatever, or their careers. So let me ask you a question. I mean, obviously we're going to get to the, you know, your tenure, um, on the uh, drug enforcement uh, task force, administration. And the administration. Yep. Did you see a lot of disparities with regards to once the arrests were made? Right? Were there a lot of disparities with regards to people of color versus people who weren't of color when it comes to sentences being handed out? When it comes to the punishment? When it comes to you know, did you did you see a lot of that happening? Well, you know, in, in the federal system, you know, at least back in back in you know my early days in my career when I was out doing investigations and arresting people, you know, you had you know the federal sentencing guidelines, right? People talk about that, right? Where you have mandatory minimums. So if if you had a certain amount of drugs, you know, and you had a maybe you had a no record or a prior record, you know, the guidelines are pretty much set. So a lot of the judges had their hands kind of tied, right? They you know based on the amount of drugs or the type of investigation or what was seized, you were sentenced based on that and your criminal record. Um, so I didn't see a lot of disparity in, in terms of how the federal sentencing, you know, went about, but in terms of the type of investigations, yeah, you know, you saw some of that, um, obviously. I mean, you know, uh, society's no different than, than law enforcement, right? You know, so you did see some of that there, but um, not in terms of how people were prosecuted or sentenced. It was pretty much strict now, you know, guidelines that were out there. Did, did you, do you or did you still agree or not agree with a lot of those guidelines? Uh, you know, you know what? One of the things that got me into law enforcement, I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, I'm a big basketball fan. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, I was at the 1986 NBA draft where Len Bias mm. was the number two pick. Mm. Right. And I was at the was at the old felt form at Madison Square Garden. You know where that is, the felt yep. form. Right. Yeah. Yep. I was present for that, man, at that draft. And I saw Len Bias get drafted by the Boston Celtics, number two pick. 
And two days later, he was dead. I remember that had a real crazy. impact on me. Just so you know, I mean, I was there, man. I saw him. He had a cream-colored suit. You know, he's looking sharp as can be, right? You know? And I was like, man, he went back to celebrate with his college friends and he OD'd. So, you know, and a lot of those, the, the you know, the, the heavy sentencing guidelines came out of the, you know, the crack, the crack epidemic of the 80s. Right. And, you know, and Lynn Bias's death really spurred a lot of those legislation where, you know, you had the disparity between the crack cocaine and the powder cocaine, right? And, and listen, I grew up in that. I operated under those principles as a young agent in DEA, you know? And uh, let's just say um, I saw that disparity, the crack cocaine versus the powder cocaine. I saw it, you know, didn't really like it, but, you know, hey, I had to, my job was to enforce the law. And that's what I did, right? What do you, you know, mean? Expound a little bit on when you say you didn't like it. Well, I mean, the, the, the crack cocaine, you know, where was that impacting, right? It was impacting African-American communities and the guidelines were higher for crack cocaine as for powder cocaine. Now, there's no doubt about it. Uh, crack cocaine is more addictive than, than, than powder cocaine, but I don't know about 50 times more. When that got brought down to like, you know, 18 to one, or I'm not sure what it is now, but I remember it got brought down to like 18 to one, that ratio, you know, that was more in line with what it is, right? Crack is more dangerous than cocaine. It's more addictive. You see, so I was glad when when that disparity was 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 brought down with that drug in particular. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm glad you clarified that. I mean, <laughs> yep. yeah, I, I just wanted to make sure we was on the same page with regards to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, listen. Because, I mean, you, you know, it was like, first of all, you introduced these things <laughs> into these neighborhoods and communities, yep. you know, and then you want to turn around and, you know, and only until it's affecting your, 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 your son and your daughter, you know, just like with the opioid epidemic. Now, 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 all of a sudden, oh, you need help versus you're a criminal. Uh, you know, the the, the yeah. lines always get blurred. It's definitely changed now, right? You know, the, 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 what's going on now? The latter part of my career dealing with the opioid epidemic and fentanyl. I've seen evolutions of this stuff, right? You know what I mean? In the '90s, it was crack, um, heroin. You know, and and now fentanyl, which is what's really driving. You know, I mean, hey, condolences to uh, Michael K. Williams, right from the Wire, right? You know, Omar mm -hmm. Little, right? You know, yeah. Um, you know, listen, I, I, I learned later, right? You know, you got to grow, right? You know, I learned later, man, that you know, addiction is a disease, Carl. You know what I'm saying? Addiction is a disease. People don't go out here to be, a, uh, you know, become a, an addict on drugs, right? You know, you try it, you get started, and you know, the the mind when it takes over the mind, it's more powerful than the body, and the will's not there. So, um. You know, um, now I'm not saying I didn't you know, want to put people in jail that were, you know, selling fentanyl and killing people because we definitely did that. Right. right. You know, but um, the, the other side of it is understanding, you know, what an addict goes through. And, you know, in my later years, when I when I got to Baltimore and I was leading the office there, I got to learn and, and deal with the communities that were impacted most by these opiates, you know, particularly the fentanyl. So right. it's, it's been an evolution, man. I've seen it from, you know. You know, I grew up in New York in the 80s with crack, right? You know that too, right? You saw that. You know, you saw what happened with crack and yeah. the zombies walking around. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I seen it. You saw it. Hey, man, it's just a, there's a lot of a lot of um, neighborhoods in some cities right now that still yeah. the same. Same, yeah. You know, you yeah. can drive through certain parts of Philadelphia that look like that. You can drive through, so you know, there's a lot of yes. a lot of neighborhoods where it's like, wow, that's 
Are they shooting a movie here? What's going on? Yeah. yeah. Is this the remake of Thriller? It's really God, scary. It, it's, it's a scary thing. thing. Scary. Um, we have a we got a big problem in this country right now, and and it's, it's well, getting worse with that. Do you think crack was created specifically for the black community? That's a tough question. I um, I've seen the the movies. I've read the books. I've done the research. There's a lot of speculation and theories about how crack came to the uh, our communities, black communities. To me, from what I've seen. None of that was proven. Now, I can't say for sure, right? I'm, I wasn't in the government in, in those days. Right. Um, but everything that I've read, and I've, I've looked at it extensively, we, I've had, talk about debate in your communities, right? I've had this question posed to me by a lot of people throughout my career um, in law enforcement as a DEA agent. I haven't found, and, and again, I, I go off the facts, right? You know what I mean? I looked at all the facts. I, I, I looked at the, the, the books that were written on it, all the, the articles, and even the, the investigations that spun from it. Um, um, about the, you know, the, the different federal agencies that might have been involved in introducing crack cocaine to the black community. And I, I haven't seen that proof, absolute proof. There's a lot of speculation, but I haven't seen it. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I want to get into the part of your life where it resembles the movies that I've seen. Okay. <laughs> I want to get, come on, man. I want to get into yeah. the part of your life where yeah, yeah. I want to hear yeah. about the exciting stuff that you did chasing down these international and, and domestic uh, yes. drug criminals, you know, because yep. you, you were in, you were in Baltimore, you were in yep. be more careful. That's what I call Baltimore. <laughs> come on, Carl. Come on. <laughs> I love Baltimore. Baltimore is a great city, man. You know? Yeah. They got great crabs. It's a great city. They got great um, seafood, but man, oh man, <laughs> I you know, like you, you, you live the great people too. Great people. Oh, yeah. Um, they just got a funny yeah. way of talking, but I love them. Yeah, they you got know, a funny they, way of talking. They, they don't know how to pronounce the word to or do or you <laughs> or, 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 or O's. It's really O's. They got, a tr- they got trouble with O's, like when, the, when it comes after one or if there's a consonant or vowel after it, like dog becomes Doug. I, I don't, there's a lot going on with Baltimore. Not really clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not really clear. Yeah. But. <laughs> I kid. I no, love. No, listen. Uh, yeah, no. The people from Baltimore are are are, are good people, man. And uh, hey, listen. I spent you know almost half of my career in Baltimore, right? I could have been in other other places, but um, I got there in 2010 for the first time as a supervisor. I, I was privileged to to actually lead the DEA office in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, the last four years of my career. Um, so, um, I got to see some, some, some great work. I developed some great relationships there in Baltimore and I'm, I'm very proud of the work that I did in that city. Well, first of all, um, man, let me commend yeah. you. Let me just commend yeah. you. First of all, like I said, every, yeah. everyone who comes on the show, uh, you know, uh, to, to put yourself out there in that capacity, to even choose to be on the front line in any capacity uh, in your line of work, you know, is definitely brave. It's very brave. It's commendable. And you're out there making a difference in our communities. You're out there. And, and, and that's, you know, obviously one of the reasons why you did it to begin yep. with is to make a difference. Absolutely. So let me just take this moment to basically give you your flowers and give you your props. Because uh, one, you know, as people of color, as, as black men and black women in this country, you know, it's, you know, I, I don't want to quote the, the, the late great James Baldwin, but constant state, constant state every day, you know. Um, so the fact that you choose or chose to do these different things and, 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 and probably had a lot of obstacles that you went through, even just getting and climbing that ladder alone, you know, which is a whole nother show because we only have you know, so, so much time, you know. Yep. But, uh, just want to get your flowers, man, and say thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate you if no one told you. 
I appreciate you. No, no. Listen, it's it's always good when you hear that from people that are not in law enforcement, right? Because, you know, until you're in it, you don't really understand what it's like. That's yeah. one of the reasons of this show is to, um, that's to get a different perspective and to try to bridge that gap between the black and brown community because, that's correct. you know, a lot of the times we have different experiences with the police. Yeah. We have yeah. a lot, you know, as you, you as well, you've experienced it. And that's correct. so- you know, and I know that, you know, a lot of the times they say one bad apple, you know, when we look at all these, you know, the, the you know, the past, co- the past, whatever, it's, it hasn't changed with regards yeah. to police brutality. And if, if the training was of, of such or misconduct and, 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 but you never really hear this, it's like the, you never really hear a lot of these things where it's us or people yeah. of color, you know, I've heard different wow. stories about, you know, where, where different officers and different, where there's like one or two here and there. But the majority isn't us with regards to the misconduct, with regards to the pre- police brutality cases, with regards to a lot of these things that are happening. We're not doing it to us. Well, I can tell you this, man. Um, um, I went through um, I went through the State Police Academy right after Rodney King. Right. You know, and and the proper use. I still have calluses on my hand from how they, they trained you how to use the baton, not how Rodney King not that way, you know, the proper way, right? You know, yeah. the lower extremities on the body, you know what I mean? And you're hitting the, hitting the little punching bag with the, with the baton, right? You know, um, and I went through the state, I mean, the DEA Academy, you know, and no one in the DEA Academy ever taught me how to, you know, put my knee on someone's neck for nine and a half minutes. Right. All right. You know what I mean? So when I see things, I was retired when the thing with, when, with George Floyd uh, came about, I was retired, um, but I was outraged. Yeah. I was outraged yeah okay because i'm telling you that right now i went to two academies and no one ever taught me that technique all right it's not taught you know what i mean it, it somehow manifests itself um in in years of being on the street um and uh you know that's what we end up seeing out there right you know what i mean so but you talk about the impact with communities i mean i was in baltimore man and one of my worst days was watching a bunch of cops getting arrested some of them that worked with my office you know what i mean and um and i knew once that happened you know i'm talking about the uh the the gun trace task force investigation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in Baltimore. I mean, I didn't feel sorry for those corrupt cops. I didn't feel sorry for them, right? I knew some of them and, you know, they're in jail. I didn't feel sorry for them at all. You know, what I knew was that the fragile trust in the community was probably gone for a generation or even possibly forever, okay? You cannot, it's hard to get that back when you lose the trust of the community, all right? And, you know, they're going to be working for years to build trust. Out in Minneapolis with George Floyd, it's going to take Law enforcement, you know, it's going to take a long time for people to to build that trust. All right. I know there's a ton of people out there now doing their best. And I was out there myself. You know, I got to Baltimore right after the Freddie Gray, you know, uh, situation with the riots more. And uh, I mean, I saw the impact. I saw the distrust in communities um, with law enforcement, with, with, the, with the police. And, you know, I, I try to, and this is why I try to get young people now to consider careers in law enforcement. Right. Because the problem will not get better unless if you sit on the sidelines. If I sat on the sidelines after getting pulled over and searched, you know, on the side of the road in the middle of the night when I had no drugs. And I know so many people that have had that negative experience. But I'm telling you that, you know, the only way to make this better is for us to diversify these agencies. OK, diversity can be the greatest strength in law enforcement. If you've got a partner who who didn't grow up in a black community and he's policing a black community, if you have someone you can turn to or maybe someone you're riding with on a, on a, on a tour that can actually teach you and you can learn more about the communities that you're policing, it would only make that cop a little better. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? So well, I'm well, a believer that diversity will make us a better, a better police force and a better society. I think, I think the, the, that I agree. 
Let me just start mm-hmm. there. I agree. Mm-hmm. I also know that the vetting process has to change. Totally agree. The vetting process and the act, the whole process has to change with regards to, because, you know, you got a lot of cats that join for the wrong reasons and they're really just wolves in sheep clothing. And so, you know, no matter how many times you show them the neighborhood, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not going to make a difference at all. That's just my opinion. But I can tell you this, um, in my career, <laughs> I never searched anybody illegally. <laughs> you know, when I I got I got proper righteous warrants, I never broke the law. I already you know said I mean? so, it, ain't, it ain't us. I already said that. <laughs> I already said oh, it. it ain't us. <laughs> majority, I already said it. like this. Yeah, it yeah, ain't us. So, yeah. yeah, that's that goes without saying. So, all right, now back to this yes. exciting story that you're about to tell me about how. <laughs> One of the hitmen in Sicario, and, and, and you, you tracked him down, and you had to fly overseas. Talk to him. Tell me what happened. Give me something. Well, no, listen. I, I mean, um, I, I got I got stories. You know, I don't know how great they are, but you know, I got some good stories, man. You know, like um, I got a chance early in my career to be an agent that was part of a um, an elite group that that worked international, right, and and targeted international, like what you call like the the, the people that are importing the drugs into the U.S., right? You know what I mean? And uh, and then when you go over to a foreign country, and you know you arrest them and you throw them on a on a on a on a, on a, a, a DEA plane and fly them back to the U.S., <laughs> you know. And um, I used to prosecute them in D.C., right? You know, and here it is. I'm driving with this international, major international criminal from you know, some, you know, foreign country. And uh, as we're driving down like Pennsylvania Avenue, I'll show them, they're like, oh, the, the Washington Monument. Oh, look at the White House. You know what I mean? And, uh, Hilarious. As I'm taking him to jail, you know? Well, he ain't gonna never uh, see that again. <laughs> probably not, probably not. But, you know, listen, you know, listen, to me, it was always about business, right? You know what I mean? I never had, I never had anything personal, man. It was my job. Um, it was like, a, you know, sometimes like a game of cat and mouse to make it that simple sometimes, right? You yeah. know what I mean? It's like you're doing your thing so and you, um, so you going back did... to even the John Gotti thing, right? You know, it's my job to try to catch the biggest and baddest criminal out there. Right. So, so one of the, so let me, let me just get this. So basically you were involved in an investigation here and you tracked yes. somebody like overseas, right? Overseas. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And, yeah. you, and this is some now. Now is this is this when you were just like this wasn't like an undercover situation that you were. No, 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 no. This is when, like I said, man. You know, after you, you do the undercover and you learn how to be a an investigator. You know what I mean? I was want to work at the highest levels mm-hmm. as an investigator, and then you know I got that opportunity to work that way. You know, and uh, so tell me know, about how. Tell me how it went down over there. Like, obviously, you're not giving me name, names. <laughs> well, listen, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to say any names because, you no, know, I don't want to. I got you. Out there, but, I got you. But I still want to know, you went to this place, right? Yeah. You, yeah. you went over there to this place yep. and you set up this thing. Tell me about how it went down. Tell me about. Well, well listen, now, here's the thing now. In a, in a foreign country, I have no arrest powers. Right. Right. You know what I mean? You don't have any arrest powers overseas. So you have to rely on. You know, uh, the great thing about DEA is they got offices and in, in, in like 90 foreign countries, right? So you can always find an office to help you with an investigation. Right. And a lot of those offices, they work with the police in that country. So, you know, you coordinate with them, you get down there. All right, let me tell you what. I remember one time we set a guy up who was a politician, like a law enforcement type high level official in the country, right? And um, he was getting he that money. The yeah. guy to the US. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, he's got the money. He's just. He's letting lots of drugs go through his port of entry, right? You know, um, and we set the guy up and we brought him to the U.S. for training, 
Okay. And then, you know, he got a chance to go shopping, you know, <laughs> and actually he used some of the money we paid him in a bribe, right? He used some of that money that we paid him to buy, <laughs> to buy things for his family in the U.S. You know what I mean? So we actually arrested him and carrying the money that we actually gave him as a bribe. So we went to his hotel room and we knocked on the door and, you know, he came to the door and we said, hey, turn around, you're under arrest. And he thought it was a joke, right? You know, like, no, man, this is He's like, ah, you funny. Come on in. I got oh, you guys are funny. Thing. Come on. <laughs> so, yeah, man. So, you know, we, we cuffed him up, man. And, you know, he didn't go home. He stayed in the U.S., you know, so. That's um, so he, he, used, he used the money to party with. Hilarious. He was partying with the money. He was buying gifts with the money we gave him. So, I mean, that's great evidence, right? If we pay you a bribe and you know what it's for and then we catch you carrying that money. You know, he brought that money with him to the U.S. to go shopping. So that was pretty cool. But when it came to like arresting people in a foreign country, you know, you would land, you would be would be there for the briefing, but you would not be there to make the arrest. Because, again, in a lot of these countries, especially if you're not working over there, we didn't have any I didn't have any arrest powers in 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 Colombia, you know, or in uh, Mexico or wherever. You know what I mean? So definitely exciting to to be part of those type of operations. He was over there getting, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's the dude's name from Scarface? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sosa. You want me to the believe movie, that Sosa. Omar was a stupid thing, <laughs> but Sosa said so? <laughs> yeah, man. So, you know, it, it, it was it was, uh, it was was an exciting time, man, you know, but, um, you know, listen, what I found, man, as, as I rose through the ranks in DEA, right, mm-hmm. you know, I, it got more difficult, you know? It got more difficult for me as I was moving up the ladder in terms of uh, providing leadership, you know, and I just felt like there were some people in the agency that were denying me opportunities to get to, you know, the, like the top levels within the, within the agency. I still feel that a lot of people there know that. And, you know, that probably contributed to my not early retirement because, you know, I. And what do you think that was based on? Well, you know what? It doesn't make society any different than anything. So, I, I, you know, listen, I had people in my ear. Black and white telling me at the time that, you know, it was uh, it's racism. Right. You know, when you say that word racism. Right. You know, again, I'm all about getting the proof. Right. You're going to be, uh, you know, a convicted racist. Then, you know, you want to see the proof and the evidence. Right. But when you talk about something like systemic racism, which, uh, you know, when and when I say that word, uh, I'm not saying that. You know, some of my colleagues, you know, uh, in, in law enforcement, they would get a little, hey, you know, I said, hold it. When I say systemic racism, I'm not calling you a racist. What I'm saying is that there, the system, there are systems in place, yes. right, that yes. contribute, perpetuate these stereotypes or whatever it is. You know what I mean? That that tend to hold people back from ascending into the upper ranks within an agency. OK, because, you know, I, I was almost there. Right. You know, and I was very proud of my career. I mean, Baltimore was a great office, a big office. And, you know, but I felt like there were people that led the agency in leadership positions that that purposely held me back from right. ascending to the highest so, levels. So is it the system or is it individuals? It's, it, well, you know what? I had some people tell me it's the individuals, but, you know, and that could be some of it. But in a lot of things, a lot of it, it's the it's the system. Right. You know, because if you don't have people, if you don't have if you don't have diversity at the top of an agency. Right. They're not going to care about. You know what I mean? They're not going to. You know, but if you have people that are in the room um, when decisions are made. Right. You know, when right. you know, like when when a CEO makes a decision. Right. You know, right. with the leadership of the of the organization or the agency or the company, you know, um, you know, you want to be in that room to weigh in and give your opinion. Right. So and we're I felt clear. That a lot of those people did not want you in that position. Exactly. Because I think that we're clear, yeah. but we're clear on that. We're clear that, that the system is, is what it is, but it's also ran by the individuals. And these yeah. individuals have the power to actually say yay or nay or make these decisions. 
That's correct. Which they know would ultimately lead to changing the game. Unless you have some of those, like I said, some people play the game in in such a way that they feel like, oh, they're on our side. Yeah. They're one of us, you know? And, and, you know, and then there's people who play the game in the opposite way where they, they, they act like they're on your side until they get to that, that position. And then they show who they really are, that they never were on your side. Who you been talking to? Uh, Larry Elder, Elder, Mr. Elder. He and I are. Oh, Larry Elder. There yeah, you go. Yeah, he and I are very close friends. Yeah, he. Uh, he was like, Carl, this is how you do it. Okay, you gotta play the game like Madonna. You gotta put out all this black music, and then you switch it on. <laughs> oh boy, see, you got a chance to meet all those people, right? You know what I mean? And you're you know, so- we got a Justin Timberlake them. <laughs> Oh man, no. But listen, I I just think it requires a, a deeper a deeper level of thinking, a deeper understanding, right? You know, it's like you know, like you know what they call moving the goalpost. Yep. Right. You know, can you imagine trying to kick a field goal, right? And then and right. the goalpost is wobbling, you know, and it's moving from side to side. You're never well, going to kick the, that field goal, right? Well, the point so, is, a lot of people don't yeah. realize the goalpost was never there. The goalpost mm. was just um, it was like a hologram. It was like a 3D hologram. The goalpost was never there in the first place. Listen, we all grew up with that notion from your parents, right? That, you know, you got to work twice as hard to get ahead, right? You yep. know, you've yep. heard that, right? Yep. We all grew up with that. I'm sure your father, your, your father taught you that, right? You know, so did mine, right? Well, I can tell you right now, like my, my kids, man, they, they reject that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, uh, yeah, yeah. you know. Because of TikTok, and, you, because of TikTok <laughs> and YouTube. It's ruined the world. Social media you know, is, is ruined the world to the point everyone, where it, Everyone needs to be. I don't got to work hard. I can just do this dance and make a million dollars. Got to get a little reality in you sometime, man. You know what I mean? And uh, reality says that at some point you got to settle down and and, and take care of business. Um, And and, uh, that's what I I tried to do, you know, throughout my time. Well, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, but it's the same old story. It's unfortunate to hear, you know, uh, you know, about your your, uh, situation there that you we were just yeah. discussing the, at the end of your career but yeah. at the end of the day you did do a good job and you made a difference and that's that's really the most I, I thought so that's really you know, the most and, and, important thing and we got to continue to fight the good fight we got to continue yeah. to strive to be yeah. in the room be yeah. in the room yeah. you know um because as you said we can only make a difference once we're in the room listen i'll even tell you a situation one time man i was in federal court right mm-hmm. uh, on a friday afternoon um a little dressed down because it's a Friday afternoon. I didn't have my suit on in court. And uh, I was initial appearance in court for a defendant that I had arrested overseas. Okay. Um, He happened to be a U.S. citizen, but he was arrested committing an act overseas. Mm -hmm. And um, I was with a a black prosecutor and there was a black judge on the bench. So we were standing outside the courtroom talking to the defendant and his attorney who happened to be a a white male, the defendant. All right. And the judge came on the bench and we all kind of scurried into the courtroom because, you know, you want to be in the room when the judge comes on the bench. So we all come in the, in the courtroom and, you know, there's a defense table, there's a prosecution table, mm-hmm. right? And I'm going to the table with the prosecutor, all right? <laughs> and the defendant is walking with his attorney to the defendant's ta- the defense table. Mm-hmm. A court officer jumps up in the courtroom and comes over to me and points at me and says, no, you over here. He was pointing me to be at the defense table. <laughs> Okay. All right. And I'm, I'm trying to play it off because now the judge is on the bench. Right. And I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, no. Nah. He says, no, you over here. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm the agent. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, and he's like, oh, and then he walked away. Right. You know, so oh, I'd have ripped him a new a new one when we, afterwards. I'd have ripped him one. But Carl, let me tell you how people are conditioned. That court officer. Right. He looks like you and me. 
So when I talk about people being conditioned, right? You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> you know? Who is that oh, name on that name? <laughs> Who is that name up there on that name? <laughs> but listen, I, I, you know, and I tried to, I, you know, at first I was like, well, maybe because I was dressed down, trying to look like Philip Michael Thomas from Miami Vice, you know, on, on a Friday afternoon. Um, I wasn't dressed, you know, you know, the way I normally am dressed. I try to put it on me for that reason. But then I thought about it. I was like, hold up. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that dude came at me um, because, you know, why? Because that, that's what he's probably used to seeing in that courtroom. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and, and listen, you know, agents, right? When we're on the streets, we, we, we blend in, right? We don't wear a uniform, right? Agents don't wear a uniform, you know? And one of my biggest fears was being out in a situation and having been mistaken by the police. I remember one time I was in Queens on Queens Boulevard. I was, I was looking to try to serve a subpoena and uh, a minivan rolled up, six cops jumped out and, you know, they gun faced me. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, I, I put my hands up and I said, hey, man, I'm on the job. Right. And but I wasn't reaching for anything. I'm not reaching for nothing because, you know, that was right around the time of, you know, Amadou Diallo. You remember Amadou, 41 shots? Absolutely. OK, so I know better. Right. I mean, my whole life, I knew I knew what to do even before law enforcement. Right. Hands up, you know, make sure they can see you. Right. Because, you know, really, the only thing they can hurt you is the hands. Right. You know? yep. And um, and then I said, hey, I'm on the job. I'm in law enforcement. And he said, well, let me see your badge. And I said, well, put that gun away from my ear. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he pointed the gun down. I got my badge. And then I just looked at him like, you know, like, what are you doing, man? You know what I mean? You know? And, and he was like, yo, what's your problem? And I was like, man, you know, we got into an argument. And then he jumped in his van and he was gone. It, it just, that, that happens, man. You know what I mean? It happens, you know? And um, they never even told me why they, why, they, why they jacked me like that, you know? Um, but I'm just glad I, I made it out, you know? But that's one of my biggest fears was being in some situation or being in some, some store off duty with my weapon and the store gets held up. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to try to interrupt the, the, the burglary or the robbery in progress? Because I put my gun out and try to interrupt the, I may be, you know, they may view me as the, you know, the criminal and, and shoot me. So it's every, everyone, you know, in law enforcement has that fear of getting shot. Um, but particularly, it's, it's particularly heightened for, for black agents and officers. It really is. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard stories of that actually happening. I've heard stories of that, that exact thing actually happening where, you Been know, many funerals like that law enforcement was there and they mistook them for the perpetrator. Yes. You know, and that's just unfortunate. Very um, conditioning. But you know, you got to think about that, right? You got to think about that before you act. So you almost have to play these scenarios in your mind before you, you know, you actually take action. You know what I mean? Like you got to think about it ahead of time. So that if it does happen, you kind of know how you're going to react and what you're going to do. Yeah. You got to be like, oh, this yeah. is that situation. This this is that thing. And react fast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think, you know, to be honest, be honest mm -hmm. with you, you know, and a lot of people who are from New York get will get this. That gives us growing up in New York gives us an edge over the rest of the country that they don't have. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I mean, we got that New York bias, you know. Well, well so, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm not saying growing up in Long yeah. Island gives you that edge. Oh, hold up now, I'm hold saying, up now. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, you you got a, you, you know, you have a I little. One of your girls, though. I married one of your city girls, though, right? You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have you have a little bit of it, right? No, no, no. no I, I kid, I kid. Because, yeah. because. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially during that time, especially during that era. I mean, damn yeah. it, things are probably even wilder now 
<laughs> you know, than than then. But yes, you know, it, it's a certain way of growing up with your head on a swivel. It's a certain you know instinct. It's a certain natural thing, which is it's obvious. It's it's unfortunate, but it's also yeah. very fortunate. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because it comes in handy in a lot of situations. In, in terms of, you know, I agree when you when you, when, you know, depending on whatever, whatever career choice you choose, you know, your instincts. That's what instincts. I was really referring that's the, to. That's the word that is. The, I was about to say that's the word yeah, instincts. It's, it's the instincts that that you, you never leave that never leaves you, never. especially yep. when your spidey sense starts tingling. Where other people's <laughs> spidey sense don't move at all. And you're like, yo, you do understand what's going down right now. Right. You do understand this is a bad situation or bad situation. two seconds from now. It's going to be a bad situation. That's correct. It is real simple. Coming. Yeah, it's real simple. It's like a foresight. It simple. It's, it's like a it's like a sight <laughs> that others don't have. Whether whether it's in the office or on the playing field, like it is what it yeah, is. It is what it is. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Our time is coming to an end. Like I said, man. Um, anything you want to share with the people out there? Final thoughts with regards to uh, anything positive, motivating, inspirational, or just in general, life lesson. Well, listen, I, I'm uh, I'm retired from law enforcement, right? 27 years. Um, I made it. You know, um, a lot of a lot of my friends and colleagues didn't. Right. You know, I was a pallbearer in funerals and, uh, you know, it was definitely uh, a rewarding time. I'm proud of my career. But to me, I'm seeing less African-Americans now in law enforcement than I did when I was there. Right. You know, the New York State Police you know, the DEA, uh, I'm seeing less people. And I said, I, I said to myself, is it just me that I'm seeing less or is it reality? You know, and the reality is that our young black folks out there that are growing up um, are not seeing law enforcement as a viable career option. Right. And I truly believe you know, if, if it's only going to get worse if we don't look to make it better. So one of the things that I'm doing now is I'm, I'm part of uh, a couple of organizations. I'm a member of Noble. I'm a member of an organization called NABNA. And I'm working with the youth, with students at HBCUs and other places to talk to them about law enforcement, to get them interested, to, to show them the obstacles that are going to be in, inevitably put in their way that may prevent them from becoming uh, law enforcement officers, right? Um, to make it easier for them, right? I didn't have I didn't have my uncle or my father at the dinner table growing up saying, son, <laughs> you know, when you turn 21, you know, we're going to get you into law enforcement. I wasn't schooled on that. Like I told you, I was late the first day showing up there, right? But one of the things I want to do now is to, is to help those that are still there, because there's still people there dealing with, you know, like you said, that imaginary goalpost, right? There's still people dealing with that, and I'm trying to help them to make it better, right? So um, we, have a, we have a little alliance um, of retired agents called SAFE. It's called Special Agents for Equality. Um, I like that. We are, I like that acronym. I don't know about that other acronym you gave me. It's like, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, but you know, we're, we're working um, as as retired African Americans, trying to have a dialogue with our agencies that we work for, um, trying to make sure that they continue to to seek out and and continue to try to keep diversifying the agency, especially in the upper levels of the agency. You truly will not have the change we needed unless the agencies are diversified from, from the entry level right through until people get on the job. So that's one of the things that I'm dedicating myself to doing right now is to make sure that I, I work with communities. I still, I still speak to, to kids in communities. I still do community events. Um, I'm still involved in my communities where I live and where I work to make sure that, you know, we continue to, to, to have those opportunities and to prevent, you know, some of those tragedies that we've seen, you know, the horrific things we've seen the last couple of years in law enforcement from occurring. But I'm on the sidelines now, right? So I can speak a little more. I can say a little more. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad 
that you present you present this form, Carl, for people to come on here, and I'm going to go talk to some more people that I know and tell them about this experience. And I want I want you to hear more and more stories because I think people that need to be informed and educated about what it's really like to be a black man or woman or a minority in law enforcement. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you for the for the forum and the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome, man. And, uh, you know, I want to have you back because uh, we got, you know, time is too short to get into everything I want yes. to get into today. Two last questions before I go. Sure. What was your favorite cop movie or cop show growing up? Uh, New York Undercover. Malik Yoba. What? Yeah, man. What? I like, I like, I like, I like that show, man. Ashy like lips and a toothpick. What? <laughs> that was my favorite. Believe it or not, man, I did not watch The Wire, even though I lived it. I did not watch The Wire, you know, at least you know when it was on. Now I've watched it a lot, but I didn't watch it while it was on because you know, to me, I was in the middle of that life, you know. And when I was in the middle of that life, I didn't really watch a lot of cop shows, you know what I mean? But um, I did like that show. Um, I do like The Wire. Um, but I don't watch a lot of cop shows because you know what? Crime is not solved in 30 or 60 minutes, right? You know what I mean? So, and some of it is real. I, I think The Wire was as about as real of, of a show that you could possibly have to what it's really like to be, you know, in that game, right? In the, you know, in the narcotics yeah. game. That was one of my favorite shows was that. The Wire was definitely a good show. Man, that's <laughs> it, it definitely uh, launched the careers of a, of, of, of a lot of cats. Man. A lot you, of people. You look at everybody Absolutely. that came off that show and mm-hmm. how successful they became as well. Like that was, yeah. a, that's, that's dope. Yeah. It's dope. Yeah. All right. Last but not least, if yes. there's anybody from your childhood or your past that you could have arrested, <laughs> <laughs> who would it have been and why? Oh man. Well, you know, um, childhood or past. Most people that, you know, that, I was fortunate enough that if I put my mind to it and my effort into it, I, I got mostly everybody that we targeted. But um, from growing up, not really anybody from growing up, you know, but uh, there's a couple of people out there that I didn't get in my law enforcement career that are still out there. Uh, I would definitely would have would have loved to have gotten them. I got most of my people that I went after, you know, That's so nice. tenacious, um, man, tenacious. You got to be there, right? Right. Sometimes, but, by the way, not all skill. A lot of times it's just luck. You know, you're being in the right place at the right time to see something going down, you know, um, and you've got to be tenacious. Tenacity. And, uh, but, tenacity. Uh, I like it. Tenacity. Tenacity. You know, but uh, some people call it tenacity. I call it petty, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> the little things, right? It's the little things. <laughs> it's the little things. It's the little things. It's perspective. It's perspective. It is perspective. It is perspective, man. All right, man. Here in the, the lesson. I love it. I love yes, it. Yes, yes. You know, thanks for being on the show, man. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Don Hibbert. <laughs> Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. 